Oh, welcome back. Oh, sorry about that. Not doing so well there, actually. I seem to have set up the um, the mic lead a bit too close to the practice pad, which means I have no no um, options to make annoying tapping sounds like I always do in the background of the um, background of the podcast. Now I'm going to stop doing that for a second. Hope, um, hope all is well in your world. Um, so I messed up today. This was going to be. This is my um, March 2023. Anyone that's been listening recently, um, there's nothing like ruining a um, ruining a important date by mentioning it several times before it actually is the actual date which is um, what I've kind of done really but basically March 2023 is 40 years from when I uh, first owned a drum kit so it's like all these things where you know you try and in a relationship, you try and work out when the anniversary is, don't you? You go, well, you have an argument about it. Well, we met on this day. Yeah, we didn't go to date until that day. Yeah, but this is the first day when we said we were together. You know, all that kind of stuff goes on, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's never a kind of agreement. But um, it's the same with starting an instrument, really, because, you know, when you um, you start playing an instrument, I mean, I was always sure, to be frank and to be honest with you, that I was going to always play the drums. And I was going to make a living uh, being a, a musician, being a drummer, um, and that was that's worked out for me. So that's great. Um, we can't always be that sure, um, but I have basically I have three um, what I consider anniversaries of um, of drumness. So uh, so I'm just sipping this coffee while it's still warm it's very very cold in here it's very cold at the moment in the uk it's like march but freezing it's proper it's about two degrees outside and it's late afternoon sunday late afternoon doing this a bit earlier than normal um anyway so i'm just trying to get this coffee before it literally will go cold in like two minutes oh but I have three anniversaries. Any of you that listen to this podcast regularly will probably know what they are. The first one is when I first ever played the drums. And that was in um, October 1982. Um, and that was a, um, a chance kind of meeting with, uh, with somebody in the PE changing rooms. Uh, a guy I was in a class with who had a pair of drumsticks in his hand and I was immediately intrigued as to why he had a pair of drumsticks in his hand because I didn't know he played the drums and uh, what what the hell he was doing with them and why he was getting them out in the, the PE changing rooms and kind of hitting, you know, banging on his bag and showing off. And in um, that lunchtime, I went along to the uh, to the percussion club thing, which was in a little store cupboard in the back of the music room. And uh, that was the beginning of my drum journey. Um but that was just, you know, I didn't own a drum kit, I didn't own a drum or anything. Um, but I, I sat down and played the drums on that day and I could play straight away. I knew I could play. I, I knew I'd been able to play for a while. I just had this feeling that I knew how to play the drums um, of, of a fashion, we'll, we'll say. You know, it's uh, not the finished article by any, <laughs> by any means. Uh, but I was, you know, it was, it was in my, I was 12 years old second year of a comprehensive school and uh, yeah anyway so that happened and then at Christmas because I I played the drums and all these kids were freaked out by the fact that I could play the drums the next week and if any of you listen to one of the early podcasts you'll know this story I don't want to go over the story but the next week the drum kit was now not in the back cupboard it was now in the main music room and all of the kids who were in this percussion club was sat around in a circle and I was kind of um I was gestured up to the drum kit to demonstrate to the head of music um what I had done the week before 
which was all very strange. I, I found the whole thing quite bizarre. Um, but anyway, that was the vibe. Uh, and I proceeded to sit down in front of all these kids, in front of Mr. Isaac, the main music teacher. Nice guy. Very, very encouraging to me. And uh, and I played the drums and... Um, the the, you know, the 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 myth the myth of the story was uh, this guy who could just play the drums who'd never played the drums before and, and that was certainly true but I definitely thought about drums for a long time and now you know having gone into adult life and studied the drums and studied a bit of psychology of drums and also learned a little bit about sort of neural networks and plasticity of the mind and being able to think your way into learning things there's no surprise in my head that as an eight or nine year old kid who was listening to lots of music and imagining playing the drums and having a i think a natural gift and affinity with the drums there's no reason why i wouldn't be able to sit down and play the drums so blah 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 that's all that stuff anyway mr isaac must have rung my mum and dad at some point and they gave in to this thing of me i've been asking for a drum for years and they gave in and that christmas bought me a snare drum and a cymbal and this, I mentioned this in the last podcast, and uh, had two great friends at the time, two twins called Andrew and David Powell, and their older brother actually as well, Alec Powell. He played he played a Stratocaster, I remember Red Strat, I'm pretty sure. And uh, yeah, David sang and played guitar, and, and Andrew played the bass. And I ended up playing with Andrew a bit more in a in another band with a guy called Patrick Briscoe. We had we had a trio like a, a Who. We were we were the Jam, but we played a bit more like the Who. We used to pretend to smash things up and set fire to things, which we never really did. But it was great fun, and uh, I, I played a lot with those guys when I first started playing off. But the main people I played with, and I've still got recordings somewhere, and, and Andrew, bless him, sent me um, sent me a recording a few years ago of one of our early rehearsals, and it was quite interesting because we could all play, you know. We were all good. and uh, And that was... So that was that's jumped forward a little bit. That was when I actually had the drum kit. But I began with this snare drum and cymbal, which I beat the crap out of, and and sort of basically um, it was it was a it was a very cheap. It was out of the catalogue, I think, um, which was a thing at the time in the UK. If you if you don't live in the UK, it's probably a similar thing in wherever you are in the world. But you know that the cat the cat. My mum used to buy things out of the catalogue and. And uh, it was a way of buying things where you could buy them on credit, but a lower, you know, a sort of low uh, APR. You know, you could buy things, pay for them monthly, and, um, and they used to get delivered to your house. You know, so it's quite a convenient way of, uh, a bit like you know, a bit like eBay or with a credit card in a way. Um, anyway, this was in the eighties, so and the K's catalogue, um, and. Yeah, we used to look for. I used to look for the case catalog because you have a synth, a syndrome in there. In the late seventies, is synth synthesizer drum. I kept asking my mum to buy it for me for Christmas, you know. For which she turned around and said, "Don't be, don't be daft, and um, go and play with your action man, you know, whatever, and your Lego, which I, which I did also own at that time. Um, anyway, that was that was great. That was Christmas, eighty uh, two into eighty three, and in eighty three. Um, I joined the brass band at school and um, and it was a, it's a kind of thing if I think back it's a funny thing my dad was very nervous about me being involved with music um, in any way I think you know he found the whole thing um, what the hell's this thing and how the hell's anyone ever going to make anything out of this situation my mum was, was was very much the opposite now, um, any anybody that again I think has listened to maybe early episodes of this thing, Drums in the Shed podcast. Um, my mother's, so my grandfather on my mother's side, um, his brother, who I never met. Um, in fact, I've never met any of these people from that side of the family. Even even the people that are alive now, strangely enough. Um, but that side of the family, he was a drummer. And he was a jazz drummer and he had a big band. And his son was a piano player, jazz piano player. And his grandson was a, is a drummer and he's still alive. Andrew Bold, very much still around, lives in Altrincham, South Manchester. Uh, very good drummer and, and has been a professional drummer for a long, long time. And we, we, were, we were kind of very, very similar age. And he's a little bit younger than me, I think, Andrew. Anyway, he was a drummer uh, when I was a drummer. And so... My granddad, my mum's dad, when I got into the drums, he was really chuffed because nobody 
on that side of the family had been into music at all. Uh, I think my mum sort of tried to play the piano when she was younger, and she she was also she did ballet dancer and stuff. But she became a nurse, you know. So yeah, I think you know life life does what it does, and I think, I think those days as well. It's uh, that, I think about that other side of the family is very very brave for all those for all those people to be involved in music, you know, in in the, the sort of war and post war. And um, so I think my dad. You know, on on his side of the family, everyone, everyone had been working. You know, very working class family. Everyone had worked for a living and done and done manuf manufacturing or manual work or whatever, or worked. You know, within that kind of environment. And um, I think he was just like freaking out. Whereas my mum, I think she just had this kind of feeling that it was, it was fine to do that. You know, and my granddad, my mum's dad, was really very proud of the fact that I played the drums at all and I was good at it so when I went to some music school and I went to Cheatham's when I got in there when I was 14 he used to he used to go up and tell people in the street apparently strangers who you know probably thought he was completely insane uh, which I kind of thought he was slightly insane for doing that but that was you know he was so proud of it he would just tell people and um, anyway you know, they all got used to the idea. But what, but the weird thing about this whole part of the story was in March 1983, which is 40 years ago now, it was my dad actually who um, said, we're, we're going to buy you a proper drum kit, you know. And it, there was a lad called Tony Ramwell who was in the, who was in the, the, um, in the school band um, who uh, had a drum kit for sale, George Heyman, Gold, uh, had no bottom heads on the toms, sadly, which was a bit of a shame. But it was a beautiful kit, and, and if I'd had kept that kit now, it would be a very, very nice drum kit. Um, but anyway, I had that kit for a while, and that was my first drum kit, and I bought that in March 1983. So now we're in 2023. It's 40 years this month. So this month's a big deal for me because it, um, it's uh, yeah, it's just a little bit of a kind of uh, landmark, um, and I'm still doing this thing, still playing um teaching as well teaching uh, on a, what i consider quite a high level you know i'm teaching some really great people great student i've got some great students and had lots of great students so i'm um, very blessed in that respect and um it's really important to me a really big deal for me that part of my life i really love that part of my playing life and and then this podcast which is the archive you know is another part of that thing and uh I had this plan today. I'd been thinking about it for ages. I'm so disorganised. Um, that I was going to talk about Keith Jarrett. Um, so a bit of the background of this is Gary Jackson, who's a great bass player and a good friend of mine who's, who's living now in Spain now. Um, and uh, Gary's moved out there and he's because uh, he was always wanted to live there and uh, he wants to play jazz there. He's a good scene in Valencia and stuff. And he's gone to live there. And one of the things he said to me the last time I saw him, why, he said, why don't you do more podcasts about talking about the people that you're really into? Because you, cause you're like, when you talk about those people, it's really interesting. And, then, you know, people would maybe, be, you know, be really interested in what you've got to say about it. And he was talking about Brian Blade and he was talking about Jack DeJanet and some other drummers and bits and bobs. And um, I thought about that a lot since he said that. And um, this episode, I wanted it to be about Keith Jarrett. Um, and it's a coincidental thing that Rick Beato, I don't know if people, any of you follow Rick Beato's YouTube channel. He's done some really good interviews, Rick Beato, you know. I don't, I'm not really into the selling his theory side. Of, you know, he's everybody's... Everyone's trying to sell something, aren't they? Which I'm supposed to have done on my... I'll do on my blurb in a minute, which is nobody nobody cares about, nobody listens to it, it's fine. I don't even know why I bother with it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, but anyway, everyone's selling something, aren't they? And the Rick Beato thing is... is uh, I don't watch any of those videos, all the kind of clickbaity ones that he does. But the ones that I do watch, and I've watched quite a lot of them, are the interviews, because they're really good, uh, because he interviews some great people. And, and the people are obviously know him and uh and respect him you know and like him and, and he and he does because he's a musician he's, he's you know he's a producer and stuff on a very high level he he he, he doesn't ask the obvious questions you know he, he kind of he gets people talking about stuff and they seem to want to talk about things you know um a few recommended ones not that i'm i'm not sponsored by Rick Beato in any way or not whatever but uh, the Robin Ford interview I found really interesting Robin Ford I, I love Robin Ford and love his guitar playing and his and his voice um 
And it's an interesting interview. It's quite um, quite spiky, a little bit challenging. Robin Ford, you know, he's uh, he really speaks his mind. He's uh, and uh, and some great interesting stuff on there. And it was also at a time when I was reading this uh, Leroy Jones book called Blues People, and, and he talks a lot about the blues. Robin Ford, obviously, because he's a great blues guitarist, you know. But he talks a lot about the blues and he talks about Archie Shep and some political things. It's very interesting. It's a good interview anyway. I'd recommend watching that. And, I, and there were some really good records I listened to because of the interview. And that's generally why, you know, that's why these things are good. Um, the Pat Metheny one he did, um, which was about a year ago, is really, really good. It's long. And it, I saw Pat Metheny in quite a different light. And I, I've always been... Anybody that knows me, I was always a huge fan of um, of the band with Lyle Mays and that the the the, the sort of core quartet of Steve Rodby and of Lyle and um, and both Danny Gottlieb and Paul were to go. You know, um, I was kind of less into into the Antonio Sanchez later band, and then there's a band now. You know, it's, it's Willem Simcock and Linda O Yo and and Linda O sorry and uh, and uh, Antonio Sanchez. Um, yeah, I'm less. I'm kind of less into that band again. But I was really into the writing. I was really into Lyle Mays, really. I'm into piano. I love piano players. You know, I've always loved piano players, and I love guitarists. I've always been a big fan of guitarists. So, um, I mean, that's a really good interview, and there's a really good one as well with Sting when Dominic Miller. It's a really interesting interview. Uh, but there's loads of good ones. Loads of great. Ones. It's a really good one with Vinny. It's not very long. There's a brilliant one with Greg Bizonet who. Well, he's a couple with Greg, but there's one way he talks about all the styles, and it's phenomenal. If you're a drum, I mean, drummers listening to this, if you, you you should watch that video. I mean, he, I was he was already up there in my, um, you know, in my kind of, in my, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I had a very high opinion of Greg Bizonet already, and I know a couple of people who've worked with him and his brother Matt, um, but. After that video, he, he was kind of elevated even higher in my in my opinion. It's absolutely phenomenal styles player, and uh, really well researched, you know, uh, and a very funny guy. He sounds like a very funny guy, very cool guy to be around. Uh, he's a guy I'd love to meet and chat to, but he's very funny. Um, anyway, blah 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 blah. This week or last week, as many of you may know, who watch the Rick Biotto stuff, is that he interviewed he interviewed Jarrett a while ago. I saw I saw a picture. Somebody sent me um, a picture actually of this uh, interview, and also about three months ago, I saw a picture with Jarrett Jarrett with Biotto, with Rick Biotto. and I've been waiting for that interview, and it's just came out last week. And uh, I watched it all pretty quickly, actually, uh, almost immediately. And um, anyway, it's just a, that's just a coincidence uh, why this episode was going to be about Jarrett. Um, and it still is going to be in a way, but I was going to play some audio clips. But there's two, there's sort of two problems with that. One, I was freaking about that, about the legality of doing that. Um, I'm not sure whether I can, because I think, if I'm playing something that's over 15 seconds, that's broad, I don't know. The legality is all a bit sketchy. On YouTube, you can't play more than 15 seconds. I don't know what the vibe is on podcasts because it's, uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Anyway, I kind of bottled it. But then I came to um, to sorting on my music out and I had, a, I had a disaster a couple of years ago. I sold, uh, I had a golf car and, and it had a little memory card in it um, 64 gigabyte memory card sd card and it had all of my music on it uh, i had another copy of this music elsewhere but i'd um i'd spent ages compiling this um this memory card and getting all of the music i really wanted into one place in the car and um and when i sold the car you know what I'm going to say, don't you? I left the memory card in the car and I didn't realise for a while because the next car that I bought didn't have an SD thing. It just had um, like a lead connected to my phone, you know, so I could play all music off my phone. And I didn't notice for a while because I was, um, I think I was kind of getting into more into podcasts in the car at that time, which is what I tend to listen to more now anyway than music because the background noise in the car and... 
I always find it struggle struggle a bit with music in the car. Um, it's weirder as I've got older and my cars have got better and better and the stereos have got better and better. I've become sort of less tolerant of listening to music in the car, which seems completely and utterly counterintuitive compared to some of the cars I had when I was in my early thirties and I used to listen to music all the time in the car. Um, anyway, you know, one of those things. But um, I lost all this music. And then I had a bit of a disaster with the hard drive that I had this all backed up on. I essentially um, moved a load of stuff around, formatted it, and didn't realise I'd lost this SD card. And then when I realised I'd lost the SD card, I was like, oh, no, all of that music is on CDs. And all my CDs are in the loft in the house. I've got two boxes of all my CDs, and um, I don't listen to CDs anymore, you know, so I just listen to things uh, through devices. So, anyway, I was looking through all my Jarrett stuff that I had saved, just that I had uh, in my kind of music, what I had access to on my music that I had sort of, you know, burnt off the CD and, and downloaded and stuff, you know, stuff that I bought off Amazon and bits and bobs of other things and basically I don't have hardly any of the clips that I wanted to share today anyway so I was like what an idiot you've completely messed this whole thing up you had this idea of doing this 30th 40th anniversary thing and then you've like not got your shit together you know pardon my whatever but um, anyway never mind it's all fine I'm going to crack on with it anyway and just maybe just talk a little bit about and recommend some things to listen to and talk about the journey of um of of the Jarrett thing specifically I, I probably made reference to this in the past when i talked about my kind of uh, journey into jazz and into into music when i was younger i'm not going to go over all that again because it, it is in one of the early episodes along with half the other things i've said today and just repeat myself which i'd probably normally do all the time anyway um but basically when i was 15 and i was at music school i was in um I was in the dormitory. I lived in dormitories because we we I boarded. And there we were six of us in the room. And it was a great room for people, very, very funny people. Yeah, and this was in my second year at um, at school. And um, I was in a room with a guy called Stephen Gosling, who was a phenomenal piano player, phenomenal musician. He had perfect pitch. He was super bright. Um, he was a very funny guy. He was a bit of a lunatic, actually. He was a great, great guy. And, and he used to play a lot. With with him, we had we had a quartet and we used to play all the time. And he was amazing. He was just a phenomenal piano player for his age. He played one of the Prokofiev piano concertos in his last year at school for one of the final um, one of the final end of year concert we did with the symphony orchestra. I mean, you know, to be eighteen and playing Prokofiev piano concerto, and this was in in eighty nineteen eighty nine. Pretty, um, pretty shit out. Anyway, we had a jazz quartet, and his dad was an architect, and he used to travel a lot, and he uh, used to bring these these uh, albums back for when he used to go away to Far East and stuff, and and to America and things, and he used to bring his albums back. And so Stephen always had this amazing um, music, and he played me. Um, he got this Keith Jarrett album called Standards Volume One, and he played this track called God Bless the Child. Um, I will stick a little bit of it in uh, into the podcast now, um, a little bit of that solo at the end. I'm not going to play much of it, but um, I'm just going to put a little bit of it in here and then you can just hear the vibe. That was the first Jarrett I ever heard. Uh, well, the first Jack Jeanette I ever heard. The first real small group jazz stuff that I ever really listened to, and um, and and it really it really accelerated a load of things at this time. There was a lot. It was, there was a load of stuff kind of happened in this very short period between um, between the sort of age of fifteen and, and sixteen, seventeen. Um, but this was the thing that changed my life. 
And I was listening to Buddy Rich before that, uh, big band drummers, mainly Buddy Rich, and I was playing along to the Buddy Rich albums obsessively. And as soon as I heard this, that was the end of it. It was literally a light, one light went off and one light came on. And then started this kind of dual kind of obsession, really. But um, some people would say, oh, you know, it's all around the drummers, but it wasn't. It was a Jarrett thing. It really was a Keith Jarrett thing because uh, in the year, in the, for the rest of that year, I was listening to a couple of albums obsessively, and they were both albums that Stephen had got from his dad. Uh, one of them was a bootleg album, which was a combination of My Song and Belonging. Uh, which was the European quartet band. And it, 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 on that, there's a tune called As Long As You Know You're Living Yours and another tune called The Wind Up. And I was fascinated by these two tunes. One, I was fascinated musically by As Long As know, You Know You're Living Yours because it was this kind of gospel piano thing. And I'd never heard really music like it. And there was something about, I just, there was something about the sound and the feel of this music that I really loved. And um, it had Juan, Juan Christensen and uh, Pally Danielson and Jan Garabarek uh, in that band. And uh, it was just, just something about the feel of the way they played. It was different than... Because um, it's quite rocky. And so the, the, the connection you'll hear between the... Um, you know the, the the trio tune I just played the solo there the God bless the child thing which was with the standards trio with um with with Gary Peacock and Jack and this um, long as you know you're living yours it's a kind of straight eighths feel but this kind of straight eighths feel it's broken up it's not a regular kind of just like a rock thing which is where I was kind of from and then I was like in making this connection then to Keith Moon you know I was realizing that why I was so into Keith Moon because. You know, if you listen to a lot of Keith Moon, his playing is very melodic. You know, he plays a lot between the vocal lines. And um, anyway, I'm not going to go too much into that. I've, I have talked about that before as well. Um, when I've talked, there's an episode I did on, on drummers of influence and stuff. But the Jarrett thing, it was the musical thing. And then the wind up, I was really interested, just to kind of feel it was like this straight bebop drumming kind of broken up. I was really kind of obsessed with that. And then I very quickly kind of moved on to some of the uh, to some of the solo piano stuff and, and an album that uh, I listened to thousands of times probably um, if I really think about it if I'm really honest I must have listened to it so many times so many 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 times it was this album called Lazan and Bremen which is a solo album a double a quadru a triple album sorry. Um, but it's two different concerts from the early 70s, 73 or 74, if I remember rightly. Um, and it's um, it was an ECM album. And uh, I had a copy of this, which cause Stephen, had, is, Stephen had got it bought for him on um, on LP, and he recorded it to cassette. And the funny thing was, on the, on the cassette, you could I, he'd been practising the piano while he was recording this thing to cassette, and you can hear him playing the piano because it's obviously picked up through the needle on the stylus, you know. So there used to be this kind of ghostly piano in the background. I've still got those cassettes somewhere, but uh, and, I, and I never had the album. I bought the album. Um, I've got the album now, the vinyl now, um, but I didn't buy it till much later in life. And I also have the CD of it as well, um, which is, I can't play you that because of either of them, because I don't, I don't have a record player set up and, and the CD's in the loft because I had that, I'd ripped it and put it onto you know onto my device and it's gone, so I can't play any of that. But I really recommend that album. It's incredible because because he's improvising. This was the thing that fascinated me, this improvisation thing. It's like, how can a human being play this kind of music solo without having written anything? I was completely mystified by this thing. And obviously, you know, uh, you got to put it into context, I'm 53, 52, sorry, I'm 52 still, I think. Yeah, 53 this year, 52. Um, but I was 15, 16, you know, and, and this was kind of new to me. So, you know, to, to, the, to the vastly educated of you out there now, you might be like, oh, well, you know, it's just kind of everybody's improvising. But no, not like this. 
And if you haven't heard these albums, you've got to. It's what you know, it's the thing about music is that you know music is music, and we listen to it and it moves us, and that's beautiful. But then you know, if you're a musician, like probably all of us that are listening to this, there's this there's this thing about what's going on behind that, isn't there? There's a there's, a, there's an interest and obsession or whatever. You know, we were always considering how, you know, what the hell, how. That was what I was always thinking. I, I, I love this music, but I was fascinated also with how, you know. And it really had a massive impact upon me because I, because I was listening to a lot of improvised music and not not free jazz. This stuff was, was different than that. It was, it was music that was improvised and was free in a way. It's certainly, you know, but freedom music in a way, but not at all in that tradition because it was... It was very diatonic a lot of it it was in forms it was melodic it was like songs it was uh it was like almost commercial in a way and you know no surprise in certain countries within europe and in japan and and um and north america as well maybe less in the uk but in the what i would call a sort of culturally um aware and um the culturally developing countries of, of the post-war um of which certainly germany and um and and belgium and france and and japan and these countries they were certainly had this huge kind of interest in in that kind of music you know and so the jarrett solo concerts that Lazan and Bremen was at the top of the pop charts in 74 I think in Germany I mean the, the actual regular popular music chart album chart or whatever there's a load of stats if you buy the album there's a there's a there's a there's a, there's a lovely load of photos inside and some stuff written about the album but there's also like a thing saying some of the kind of um, the headlines about that album about how popular it was and there was definitely a kind of commercial thing to it. But there's some crazy stuff on there as well. But I just got more and more obsessed with um, the solo stuff. So I really, uh, we've got, facing you, there's, um, there's, I think it's pronounced Leiling, um one of the tunes on there, tune three. And, up, and I think it's called Up Front, the first tune. I've not listened to that for a long time. But I used to play along to Up Front, the first tune. Um I haven't got a I haven't got a copy of that here, which is a real shame. But it's something that I would have I would have stuck in now for you to have a quick listen to. Well, I used to play along to that with my pad um, when I lived in London. I, I used to try and play because the the rhythm. If you listen to that track, the rhythm of it is incredible. There's some like it's just mind blowing rhythmic stuff going on on that tune. It's just got these sort of different layers of rhythm all the time. Um, and it's sort of almost like impossible to sort of work out what time signature it's in in a way, you know, because it's this kind of boogie thing and it's this kind of angular sort of straight thing and it's very, very powerful. And then the other tune, I think it's pronounced Leilene. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a beautiful kind of um, like straight eighty sort of ballady thing and it's just got some phenomenal piano playing on it and counterpoint and um the thing about Jarrett is a lot of the a lot of the things that i find amazing is this kind of recapitulation <clears throat> idea the thing when he comes back to things later <clears throat> i'm going to play you an example um now while i remember of um the song is you from still live uh, i've jumped ahead an album here but um this just while i'm talking about this idea of how how ideas come back I'm going to just play you now, interject a couple of little things. What you're going to hear first is the intro section uh, of The Song Is You from this album Still Live. It's a double album, 87, I think it came out. And then um, and then I'm just going to interject a little bit of the end um, thing as well. Um, I'm going to try not to play more than 15 seconds of each because I'll get sued. <laughs>
so it's so interesting how um, how how that idea comes back because the the end of the song is you there they do this big long improvised thing and Jack's kind of playing this kind of rock beat it's so it's like whack hitting the snare really laying into the snare drum so I recommend that to check that out but anyway that I've kind of jumped forward a bit there while I was listening to all this solo stuff so Facing You and there's a Munich concert Munich and Bregenz I bought those albums had those on vinyl in fact I've got two copies of them when I went to see Jack with John Sermon in 87 I've got uh, the album they signed that album for me sadly all my vinyl got destroyed in a flood in 2015 so all I've got all the vinyl but I haven't got any of the sleeves for any of the albums they all got the, the the box that they're in was all filled with water and um i didn't didn't discover this for a while because the box was in a corner and, and it had a hole in the bottom and, and when the water came into the flat I mean, it came in 10 inches but this this was at the bottom of a pile this and i thought it was a sealed box so i thought i thought it was fine and when we opened the box the box was filled with water weeks after it had been uh, well it was about a week after it had been flooded so all all the sleeves I had to take all the vinyl out of the sleeves and tried to save the sleeves, but they all got destroyed. And the the Break Ends solo concert, I had a copy of that on its own because they sold ECM sold that as a separate record. Then there was there was Break Ends and Munich, which was a triple album again. And the music was very interesting, very much darker. Um, a lot of that, um, really, really mega. Some of the stuff on that concert, but a lot kind of more challenging to listen to. The break ends, the beginning of the break ends is one of the most joyful, beautiful things, groovy things that he plays. And he comes in at the beginning, it's like one of those, like, oh, it's going to be one of these. Oh, amazing. It very much reminded me of the beginning of the, of the, of the, of the Brayman concert, which is this beautiful intro, very kind of intimate, beautiful intro that really evolves into this lovely sort of, um, just this lovely, groovy little thing. Really nice. Um but I was listening to all that solo stuff, um, but also I was really, really getting into the trio and the American quartet stuff as well. So he had he had the European quartet with the Norwegian guys, and then he had um, the American trio. Well, it was two American trios actually. Sorry to get more and more confusing. It was Paul Motian and Charlie Hayden was the early one, Life Between the Exit Signs, and a few early albums in the early seventies. But that band became the American Quartet, and they were on a separate deal. A lot of those albums were not on ECM; they were on uh, Impulse, I think. Um, but it was one of these weird situations, Jarrett, where he had two sort of record deals at the same time. He had this kind of American deal, I think, with, with Impulse, and he, but he had the ECM thing. The ECM thing was going on from Facing You, and it, and it, and it still exists now, I think, even though I, I know he's not playing really anymore. But um, <clears throat> but uh, the um, they recorded this album called The Survivor's Suite for ECM. It's two movements, and that was one of the first... American Quartet albums that I really, really got into and listened to a lot. Um, and it's a really interesting album. I'd really recommend that when, it, when, it, when he comes in at the beginning, it's very ethereal and he's playing... He's playing like recorders and stuff, Jarrett, because he plays a lot of different instruments. He plays soprano sax as well. Yeah. And he plays... Him and Dewey play this sax duet thing on this kind of this groove that's on like a G, I think it's a G minor kind of vampy thing and then it's great because when he comes in with the piano you're so ready for the piano you know and he comes in with this kind of thing on the on the sort of it's like a modal thing got F F to G like minor kind of vibe uh, you know F F and um, F and C and then G and D and the, the rhythm of it is sort of in a straight eighths pulse but it's not really in four. I don't really know what it's in. And, and Paul Motian and, and Charlie Aiden are playing this beautiful thing. And then he, and then the tune comes back again with Dewey, you know. And uh, Dewey Redmond's just such a beautiful sound and, and vibe in this. I always love Dewey Redmond's playing. I, I, some people, um, they they think it's a bit um, too free or whatever, but I just think they're talking nonsense. But I, um, but I was very lucky, you know, because I got into Dewey through Jarrett and, and uh, you know, heard him on a few other things. Like 8081, that, that Matheny, Charlie Hayden album with, with Brecker and Dewey Redmond and Jack, Charlie Hayden. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful album. I really recommend that. That's another ECM one. Um, 
uh, Jack is great on that album and Brecker as well. Well, they're all great. I don't. You just go through the whole band, don't you? They're all great. It's just great. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really into that record, The Survivor's Suite. That's another one I really recommend. Um, and then by this time, I was I was playing along a lot to a few records and this is mainly what I was going to talk about and it was just mainly the thing today you know was this sort of idea of of you know it's the 40th year of playing for me and and this this period I can really identify as being as being the most sort of um focused period on trying to copy you know trying to copy um trying to copy jack and um gone as well Christensen and Paul Motion well I mean not, not really Paul Motion but um, so it's so free that way it's more of a, trying to copy that vibe than what he was actually playing whereas Jack and I was really trying to emulate those two other guys I was really trying to kind of play trying to copy what they were doing and try to get the feel and the sound particularly on the ride cymbal and stuff and um, I didn't really get there with Jack until I bought this Istanbul ride, which I've still got now. I didn't get that ride until 1991. And once I got that ride, I, I was then able, when I started got back into playing jazz again, I was able to kind of go back to, um, to kind of trying to emulate that thing. But I was listening less, playing along less to the albums then, listening more to the albums without playing along to them. But when between the age of 16 and 19... But particularly when I was at school, there was three or four albums uh, or particular tracks, actually, that I listened to a lot and was really, really trying to copy what they were doing on those tracks. So the first one is this um, track called... Um, it's, well, it's an album called Changes, and, the, and this, there's three tracks on Changes. There's Flying Part 1 and Flying Part 2, which are these trio improvisations. Um, and then there's a tune called Prism, which is a Jarrett tune, which is a third tune. And Flying Part 2, I was particularly obsessed with. I used to play along to this track and try and play exactly what Jack was doing on there. Uh, unsuccessfully, but it was kind of fine in a way because I was because of, because that feel is so strong and the sound world of it is so strong just by even attempting to copy it and being in that headspace and that feel was was a massive education for me anyway regardless you know and and I could hear the connection between the three of them so clearly and and Jarrett's time is so strong well, all, all three of their time is strong but Jarrett's time because of the solo piano stuff I'd been listening to so much of that solo piano stuff I was really quite obsessed with Jarrett's time you know and, and his rhythmical feel so it was like amazing playing along to that stuff because I really felt like I was playing along to things that were that was so set in time you know set in a particular kind of time feel and um and a, and a kind of and a way of playing together you know and then another trio track i was obsessed with was the way you look tonight off standards live um just because of the vibe of the way they play that standard the way they play that tune the approach to that tune really mind blowing just how free they are with the uh, with the melody particularly um cuz the you know the tune comes in blah 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 and Jarrett he kind of really states you know states the tune quite clearly on the first pass and then 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 there's like a again and he plays this little embellishment and then he he goes to the b section Blah, 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 all that stuff and um, the way he doesn't play it the way I've just sort of sung it he plays it much more um, it's much more embellished than that and then when they come back to the A again what they what they do him and Jack with the time the way they talk, they just turn the time inside out it's not even upside down it's inside out I can't describe it but 
it's the way Jarrett he, he plays. He, he's late. He's late with the tune. Jack is all over the place, and then he's and then he's early with the tune on the second part of it, and they're really stretching. Jack is just stretching, 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 and then he releases it when they go into when they go into the solos on beat four. Which is like this is where this thing where I was learning when I was trying to play learn to play swing. The thing I was noticing about a lot of these drummers was where they were where they were playing to within phrases. You know, they weren't playing to the downbeat. They were playing to these different parts of the bar, which were unusual for me. You know, um, and I'd sort of learned this. You know, playing big band, playing along to the Buddy Rich stuff and stuff because there's a lot of syncopations in that. But it's that was all felt preset because the arrangements of the melodies were set you know whereas now I was listening to these like Jarrett playing the way you look tonight and the tune was like all over the shop but yet he's totally recognizable and and musical and and still feels like it's true to the spirit of that music the songbook music you know so I was just I was really fascinated by this and playing along to it I was trying to trying to get into the feel of what Jack was doing and uh, not being very successful but again just that just having those having that ability to listen in that way and being able to hear what they were doing and and and, and stretch my own playing out and, and try and make that sound was and the, the thing in the context of this by the way the, I was playing a Premier Royal drum kit that was 12 13 16 and 22 bass drum and then this awful snare drum. I don't even remember what this... I think it was a Dixon snare drum. It was a really shit snare drum. And I had a Pace 2002 Heavy Crash, some Pearl CX400 hi-hats, and a Sabian Medium Ride. So I'm just trying to... just chucking all that into the mix for you there, for you to try and imagine somebody trying to play like Jack Jeanette on that horror show of an instrument, you know. And that's what I was trying to do. It was nowhere. I even had Evans hydraulic heads on the on the Premier Roll at one time, you know. Um, just nowhere. The whole thing was nowhere. But I was somehow managing to sound quite good, you know. And uh, and you know, it wasn't until in in early nineties ninety one I bought this DW drum kit, which is ten to fourteen and twenty bass drum, which I had for a long time. That was the first time I had a proper drum kit, and I bought an Istanbul cymbal ride, you know. And I got rid of all that stuff and slowly replaced everything with with the actual sound that I actually wanted to make, you know. And eventually ended up with, you know, end up with all the Istanbul stuff, which I've still got, you know, which is the the, the sound world I live within now which is which is beautiful but um I don't I haven't got a copy of uh, of those things which is really really annoying for the examples but I'm trying not to get sued as well so I'm just going to recommend that you have a listen to those um and then I was also really really obsessed with this thing called the wind up which was the um I've already described all that that thing from the European quartet. I was playing along to that track as well and trying to kind of uh, get into the feel of that, um, which was which was great. Uh, I might have a copy of that, actually. So let me check.
there's one. There's a bit of that track. And then also, I was talking about this other tune I was playing along to a lot. Uh, more than God Bless the Child, actually, because the God Bless the Child was like the life-changing moment, but I was never actually that keen on that track or even that album, actually. I never really listened to Standards 1 a lot or Standards 2, the studio albums. I was It was Standards Live and, and Changes and Still Live were the ones that really got me. And then an album called Tribute, which came out in 88 or 89. Um on oh, my music stand now behind me is Just In Time, um, Irving Berlin tune, which um, I'm going to be playing with a trio, which I'm just about to start rehearsing with next month. Um, uh, and you can hear a great version of um, of Pete Bernstein, Larry Golding, Bill Stewart playing that on, on a Vanguard gig from about, about 10, 10 or so, 12 years ago. Um, but there's a great version. The, the, the first version I heard was on this Jarrett tribute album. I always wanted to play this tune. And they do a great, great version of it. It's really mega. Um, pretty bright, you know, up there in the high 200s. Um, Larry, Bill and uh, Pete play it over three, I think it's about like 310, I think. Pretty, pretty brisk. Um, Bill Stewart solo on that. It's phenomenal. I mean, how somebody how close to the tune he stays and what the freedom and how he gets around the drum kit. Anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent with that, but um, you can definitely hear, you know, you can hear sort of a bit of an influence there from Jack. I mean, I know Bill's thing was more Tony and um, Roy kind of vibe, but definitely can hear a kind of Jack thing as well. Um, but it's just so beautifully played. It's so great. Um but also, yeah, there was this. So this tune I was playing a lot to uh, this the straight eight thing was this. As long as you know you're living yours, which I'll, I'll chuck a bit of that in now as well. Yeah, that was um, the gospel, gospel kind of thing. I was going to put that in earlier on, actually, but I forgot to um, forgot to mention that. So, yeah, so the, it was this whole period. It really, this thing I'd just encourage you, if you're a young drummer listening to this, you're getting into jazz or whatever. It's just that thing of playing along to records and really trying to copy, emulate what you're hearing. Really, really trying to be, you know, as true as you can to. Um, to whatever the vibe is, you know, whatever the vibe has gone on on the record. And it's definitely things that you should be really enthusiastic about the music, be really enthusiastic about the music. Because that was the thing for me. I wasn't, this thing, like I used to, when I used to play along to solo Jarrett stuff, I used to play along to the solo concerts. And I used to be, um, that's a police car. Um, I used to be um, like trying to play along with, Jarrett like play not not like play groove along to him be like playing the lines trying to play the lines on the drums and and what have you um and so it was always a thing of 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 this kind of because of the it's just because of the rhythm of it and I was so into the music um and and so it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great, it was a very productive time for me. It was a lot of listening. And then, you know, when I got into my, into my twenties, I got back into playing jazz in the sort of my mid twenties. I went through a sort of period of not playing a lot of jazz, what I would consider proper jazz anyway. Um, I was kind of trying to find my feet and uh, moved abroad for a while and then kind of came back to live here and was playing in some sort of more groove based bands and was doing a kind of appalling job of it really, because I wasn't really into that music and. I was a good player and people were asking me to play with them because I was good, but I wasn't really playing that music well, you know. And then um but then I, I kind of got, got in with these got in with these guys and um started playing jazz again. And and he used to go over to Leeds a lot with a guy called John Thorne, who used to play with this guy called Alex James. And we used to drive every Tuesday morning, I used to, John used to pick me up and we'd drive over to Leeds and we we played trio and we'd just listen to the Jarrett trio me and John in the car and one was the sixth album the 
um, the live, the uh, Blue Note, New York Blue Note one, which is an ECM album. It's the six gigs. Um, we used to listen to that album a lot. That was one of the main ones we listened to. It was just, just so much music, you know. <clears throat> it was always really busy driving over there, and we were always up against it, trying to get to the gig in time and get set up in time and what have you. And, uh, and we had this trio, and we were trying to play like, Jarrett, this guy called Alex James, he was a really good piano player. Um, he was quite, he was into Paul Blay and stuff and into Jarrett, into the more kind of free players. And um, we we definitely felt like sort of kindred spirits with each other, you know, in, in the music that we're into. And so it was great to have that kind of outlet, but I was playing along less to the albums then. I was more just listening to the albums and and playing in that way with other people, you know. And uh, and that was the that was the time for me '96 when I really started getting back into playing jazz again and got back into a scene and met lots of uh, lots of different people, a lot of people that I know now, you know. So um, so yeah, it was, it was a beautiful thing, and so that so that's kind of it, really. I don't want to go on too much more about too many other things, but there's so much amazing music. Um, the Jarrett thing, you know, there's so much, and there's so many other albums, so many. And I, and I, I was very lucky in '89. I saw the trio live at the at the, uh, the um, at the uh, which one was it? Not the Purcell Room, the um, the Royal Festival Hall. God, I couldn't remember the name of it then. I had Free Trade Hall in my head, which was in Manchester. Yeah, there was the Royal Festival Hall. I went to see the trio, and um, it was amazing. After all those years. Uh, I've been listening since, since I was 15 and 18. Um, it, that was in the October. I still got the poster somewhere. Um, yeah, it was amazing seeing, and I'd never seen Jarrett play before. I'd never seen him, you know, and, and anybody that's ever seen him play, because you can hear him when he's playing, because he makes a lot of noise, but we, watching him play was, I was, it was overwhelming the whole thing, because Jack was there playing. And I'd seen Jack with John Sermon in, in 87. And I'd met him, and he'd signed an album, and it was great. And that was a really great gig, but it wasn't Jack. It wasn't Jack with Jarrett, you know. So seeing Jack with Jarrett at the Festival Hall in '89 was incredible. And I bought an album called Changeless, which had just come out, which was four trio improvisations from four different gigs across North America. Uh, it's a great tune on there called Endless. Um, really beautiful tune on there. I recommend that as a. Well, the album's beautiful, but it's very, very, very mellow album ethereal um and then in the summer uh i got to see him solo um which was great uh he stopped playing at one time at one point and told us all we watched too much telly it was very funny because people were coughing he was playing this very quiet passage really beautiful and he loads of people were just coughing you know they couldn't people can't sit still and listen they're all stressed and and so he stopped and he kept putting his hands together in a kind of praying position and eventually he just stopped and said, oh, I'm just going to let everybody have a minute. You know, you all watch too much TV. No one can concentrate anymore, you know. Is it, is it so hard to just be able to be just quiet in the room, you know? And everyone was having a bit of a laugh and then he just carried on playing exactly where he'd left off. And that was on the radio. Uh, Ian Carr uh, it was on an Ian, on Radio Three about six eight months later. I remember recording it when I was back when I when I moved back home. I recorded it on cassette, and um, and they, weirdly they 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 did the first half second and the second half first on the radio. They didn't do it in the order it was actually played, and I'd missed some of the first half because I was late, and they wouldn't let me in until there was a there was an opportunity to go in. Um, so I had to sit outside and watch it on a screen, some of it. And then I got in. And then the second half, I saw the whole second half and the encores. And the second half, when he, I've got it on the, I've got it on cassette somewhere. When they edit it on the radio, you don't hear any gap at all. It's weird. There's no because they 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 edit it out him stopping um, and talking to the audience. They just got rid of it. They they did they made an executive decision to edit it. And you listen to it and you cannot hear a gap in the music. It's very strange. Um, and I was there. There was definitely a gap because he was talking to us. So that kind of level of control of the instrument, to be able to go straight back to the instrument after having and be able to like go straight back in, um, that was kind of a bit mind-blowing, really. 
Um, but yeah, so I was lucky to see him. Um, so that's kind of it, really. Um, I was just going to just quickly mention at the end that um, I bought the Gadiments book, the Steve Gad book about his rudiments or something. And it's, you know, when I first bought it, I was a little bit, uh, this is all a bit, seen this all before and all that but i've actually spent a bit of time with it and i have to say i have shifted my view slightly shall we say it's um it's a good book i recommend it um and i really like rudiments i really like patterns with flams in so actually this is a little bit why I was a bit oh yawn when I first got it because it's lots of things that I kind of practice anyway. But there are a few little little things in there that um, I've been really enjoying, and I also I like the displaced thing. He does a lot of displaced stuff, so it's just the same pattern or you know rudimental shape or whatever, but it's moved by semiquaver, and um, I recommend. You know, as I think, I've not even read the, might even begin the beginning of the book. I don't tend to read the forewords of books. I just tend to get straight into the detail. But um, I recommend practicing with uh, with with playing feather bass drum and high on two and four, playing all those exercises just with the, with the because you get into the coordination of playing like a flam paradiddle that's displaced onto the second semiquaver or the third and fourth semiquaver. Um, there's just lots of nice stuff like that I haven't got all the way through it in detail yet I've played through the whole book and uh, some of the tempos are quite low I, I would I'm surprised he's put those tempo markings in it feels to me like I don't know it doesn't feel like I don't know I, I'd have thought he'd have um, there's, there's a little clip of him on Up Close and he talks about playing um, the Flam paradiddle diddle alternating okay so you've got your flam paradiddle, paradiddle diddle and then it alternates okay it's a bit harder than you think and he plays it quite fast on that video um so I'm sort of surprised that he the tempo markings. I mean, there might be something in the foreword which I haven't written, which I haven't read, which is probably true. That probably says something else. But I've been practicing the ones I've been getting my hands around um, a good 25 BPM quicker than they're, they're marked because they feel that feels like for me it feels like where things are, are, are pushing into the muscle memory, pushing things a little bit. Um, but, you know, I still stand by. I wrote this book called Rudiment Foundations, which is available on Google Books, five quid. Um, it's, only, it's only a short book, 25 pages, and it's got some really good exercises in there that if you practice those exercises as written, as directed, you will be able to play these rudiments and flams and all kinds of other stuff at a reasonable speed from the get-go. So, you know, that's the system I've followed, my own little system, which I've kind of used for a long time. And, and it's definitely helped me uh, with the flexibility. The thing it doesn't help you with is the reading. You've still got to read these patterns. Some of them are a little bit tongue twistery. Some of them feel a bit weird. They don't make any sense to me as a drummer. But, I'm, you know, I'm just saying to myself, it's just unfamiliar, Dave. It's not being a knob. It's just unfamiliar to you, but so I don't know. I've sometimes I have a feeling that you know there should be a certain logic um, to them, and a couple of them I, I'm still not seeing the logic in them. <coughs> but you know, uh, I'm going to persist. I'm going to persist. It's just the stickings, and there's just a couple of weird little things with the stickings. So, uh, but I recommend it anyway. It's a good book, uh, but I recommend my Rudiment Foundations book as well. So just before we finish, I just wanted to mention. Um, couple of things i do have a patreon thing everybody has a patreon you can um you can join that um it's a bit of a pain really not being able to sort of i like the idea of this buy buy you a coffee or a thing they have on youtube or super thanks um but the patreon thing you have to you know it's like three quid a month or something uh, and it's just to help support the podcast but um anyway blah 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 the other thing it was just to say, um, 
I, you know, I uh, mention again, as I always do, Johnny Roadhouse Music in Manchester on Oxford Road or Oxford Street. I think it's actually called Oxford Street, down near the Royal Northern anyway. Johnny Roadhouse Music, friends of mine, Lee Mulland on a Friday works down there. I'm not sure who's in the drum department on the other days, um, but Johnny Jr. runs that place. If you go in there and you buy anything and you've, and you've gone in there because you've listened to this podcast and on my recommendation... Yeah, I'd appreciate it if you mention that to them. They don't give me anything, by the way. It's just they're just um, I've just had a long, long, long-term relationship with Johnny Roadhouse. I worked there a couple of times for John Andrews when he used to work there. I used to sell a few drums for them. I'm quite good at selling drums. I'm very enthusiastic, and um, you know, it's, I think it's that thing of if you're in, you know, when you when you when you like something, I think it's very easy to sell it because you're into it, you know. And uh, I quite like selling drums. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it full time, but a, a little couple of times I worked down there. I worked there once for Lee when he was away with the Happy Mondays touring, and I worked there once uh, for John as well when he was ill or something. But um, yeah, and so I've known them a long time. Those guys anyway, and Lee obviously I've known Lee a long time. I still play with Lee a lot and stuff, and he's a close musical brother of mine. Love you, Lee. Um, so yeah, anyway. So Johnny Roadhouse, go there, and they have guitars, they have all, all, all musical instruments and stuff, saxophones, everything. They have a, an early kind of music thing upstairs, you know, for um, <coughs> like folk stuff and all that, and a great drum department downstairs. So, and they also do buy second-hand instruments. It's a great place to go and get rid of stuff if you've got stuff you're not using. You want to get a bit of cash for it. Uh, just make sure you take ID with you when you go in there. Um, they have to. You have to. You have your official ID, driving license or something, because they can't they can't take some off somebody who hasn't got ID on them. So don't make the mistake of making the journey down there and having no ID, because then you'll be regretting that. So um, yeah, recommend them, and um, that's about it really. So this, this this month's podcast kind of finished, but yeah, the snare drum thing's been going great. That's been the main thing this last month. It's been quite a quiet month gigging wise. A uh, few bits and bobs going on, but. I've just been spending a lot of time, pl- and the main thing is uh, still in this match grip thing. So still practicing the match grip, and the match grip's going well. It's interesting. I did a long run today on the triplets with the drumometer, a uh, slightly higher tempo, and I really felt I was really struggling with the match grip. About seven minutes in, I was really, really struggling. I could feel where the technical problems are compared to traditional grip. I can really that kind of ceiling. But it's um, the gaps. The gaps um, getting smaller. It's definitely getting smaller. So um, so it's good. So I'm kind of persisting with that. I'm enjoying playing the match grip thing, and it's, I'm determined this year to get them more even. Get 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 sort of um, be able to play either grip and just you know um, just make emotional decisions about why I'm playing with them, not technical decisions. You know. Because that's the that's the main thing. Uh, it's, there's always been a kind of technical decision to um, to play traditional grip when I've been playing something that I've wanted to play match. I've had to I've had to resort to to the uh, to the traditional because of a technical issue, and I, I don't want to have to do that. I want it to do, I want it to always be a sound, an emotional decision that's based on connecting to the instrument through sound. You know, that's the kind of main thing. So um, anyway. I'm going to go and have my tea now. So thanks for listening and um, be back again next month. So bye for now.